It's good to be back with you, and uh, Larry always asked me to update you on what's been happening since last year. You all know it's College World Series time. I'm back. Um, a lot of people think I, I retired, but I refuse to retire. I, retire is what you do at night. Re-enlist is what you do in the morning. Uh, I only retired from pastoring a church. Now, my joke is I got tired of going to meetings where at the end of them, after an hour and a half meeting, they said, so pastor, what do you think we should do? My first response always, I never say this out loud, is don't hold these dumb meetings. Just send me an email, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, actually, what I've done is what I call uh, being refreshed and repositioned. Uh, when we left Texarkana a few years ago, we moved to North Richland Hills, Texas, Fort Worth. And I preached a couple of times that first month I was so-called refreshed and repositioned. But now for the last 20-some months... Uh, I have uh, served as an interim pastor for St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Mineral Walls, Texas. That means a 100-mile round trip every Sunday just to teach Bible class and, and to preach. They are calling a full-time pastor, but the first one they called has turned it down. So we had a double whammy last Sunday. The first pastor turned it down. And then second of all, Nancy and I announced that we are moving. Uh, we're leaving North Richland Hills, and God willing, we'll relocate in Hollister, Missouri, which is near Branson towards the end of summer. I still am doing a lot of other stuff I've always done before. Uh, I'm still Vice President of Christ for India, and I want to thank you again for your contribution to Christ for India. Uh, I'm also serving as President of India Charities Foundation. I'll tell you that our campus was hit by a typhoon, HUD-HUD, a little over a year ago, and did well over a million dollars worth of damage. And so we're in the midst of uh, repairing that campus, and at the same time, we still had graduation this spring and sent out more pastors. I've always wondered what the Missouri Synod would be like if they did to pastors in our denomination what we do at our seminary over there. And that's that when you graduate from the seminary, we give you a stack of books and point you to a village where there is no known witness of Jesus and say, if you want a church, go start one. Probably a lot of guys would never go to the seminary. And i got to tell you, the first church I pastored had 1,800 members. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. Well, not really, but kind of. Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing my, uh, it's about my 13th or 14th year that I've been working down at Angola Prison, uh, teaching inmates and inmate pastors. I'm going to be back down there uh, in August for a couple of days for the big uh, Willow Creek Leadership Conference, which they actually do it in prison. It'll be via satellite, and I'll be back down to teach in September. Some of you may be familiar with Crossways International. It's, uh, it's a Bible learning tool that's put together by Dr. Harry Went. Uh, he is getting a little bit older. I've actually filled in for him to teach uh, some seminars. But they're finally putting together a board of directors. So I'm now a new member of the board of directors uh, for Crossways International. So I'm sure that will keep me busy too. Now, you all want to know less about me and more about Gideon, I hope. Uh, Gideon is, I almost wanted to call this message Giddy Up Gideon, but I didn't want to have to say that too many times, so I figured I'd stumble over it. Then I thought, well, my, my sub-theme might be from zero to hero. I kind of like that one. Uh, it's a guy who simply made choices that flow, flowed from a faith that was gradually increasing all the time, and so, uh, significant, so significant was what he did that he actually makes it into the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, with a whole bunch of other movers and shakers from the Old Testament. So today I want you to track with me 
as we uh, work our way through Judges 6 and 7. So if you've got your iPhone, you can hunt up the scriptures. If you've got a Bible, you can hunt up your scriptures. If you've got an Android, you can hunt up your scriptures. If you've got an iPad, you can hunt up your scriptures. Whatever it's going to take to get you into the Bible. And we're going to take a look at this wonderful primer on what I would call learning to trust God more. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray today that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. And I pray now for the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just in the words of the speaker, but in the hearts also of the listeners. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning, what I want to do is go through Judges 6 and 7. It's kind of an expository sermon in a way, but to talk a little bit more about how we as Christians, how we as Christ followers, can actually learn to trust even more. Now, most of us, when we come to faith, we trust God. You know, you all learned how to say, I am trusting thee, Lord Jesus, trusting only thee. But can we actually sometimes, are we a little shaky? Can we learn a little bit more? Sure we could. So I'm going to give you six different faith lessons, if you will. And here's the very first one. You'll see them up on the screen. And it says that God uses tough times to get our attention. Do you know that? God uses tough times to get our attention. As we get into Judges 6, we find the nation of Israel uh, coming off a time of relative ease. The bills are paid. I guess the kids are behaving. Business is good. Everything, it seems, is good. But as it often happens when things are going really well, what do we do? We begin to forget God. We think, you know, we've we've done a pretty good job. And they became self-sufficient. They didn't need God. And so Judges starts out by telling us, that Lord, the Lord shook them up a little bit, and he did this by turning them over to an enemy, the Midianites. And so in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them over into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now, you need to know a little bit about Midianites. Uh, they were a very cranky group of people. They were very powerful. They oppressed the Israelites mercilessly. In fact, what they did was every year when it got to be harvest time, they would show up and invade the country and just wipe them clean. Go down to verse 5. It said they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not even be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. Now, could you imagine if every year when harvest time came around Nebraska, if Iowa invaded Chances are not. Maybe Colorado uh, or South Dakota. Uh, And just kind of laid waste to our entire state. This is what's happening. Uh, And what they could not carry away with them, they destroyed. And the Bible tells us that the Israelites were so oppressed that many of them, when that time came every year, they would run away and they would hide in caves. They They just were fearing for their lives. And this went on and on for seven years until finally... They cry out to the Lord for help. Now, here's a question for you. Why did they wait so long to cry out for help? Well, here's my answer, because they're a whole lot like you and me. You know, we often wait until every possible option is over. You know, I could sit there and say, well, you know, I've got a hard time, but, you know, after all, I have a doctorate. I ought to be able to figure this one out. I mean, I'm sure Larry thought... Yeah, I could probably handle this one. I mean, after all, I've been a football coach at a college. I, I got my do- I can handle this one. Do you ever do that where you decide you can probably handle it? And you're going to kind of save God for kind of the last minute in case you're not smart enough to deal with it. But 
when they finally couldn't take it any longer, in verse 6 it said, And the Israel was brought low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So I'm going to ask you two hard questions. Question number one, how many times have hard circumstances come into your life and you never, ever bother to stop and ask God, what are you doing right now? What do you got planned for my life in this difficult time? Or the second question, how many times have you just held out thinking that you could just, you could handle this? You know, you're just going to gut it out. You'll get this thing done. So this is what we need to learn from Gideon. I mean, every experience you have in life, good, bad, and ugly, is a test that God can use in your life. And every trial in the lives of all of God's people is really tailored to draw us a little bit closer to God. I mean, when you read in the Bible where it says God actually does work all things for good, guess what? You've got a bad time. God can take that and make something good come out of it. It may not be what you were hoping for or what you were expecting, but it will be something that could ultimately give God the glory. So a great thing to remember is that when tough times come, instead of looking at them as if God is somehow punishing you, see them as a kind of a gift of God's grace and an opportunity to grow. Now, in a recent series of messages back at uh, Mineral Wells in Texas, I have said every week now for about five or six weeks, you cannot make a mark on this world until God has made his mark on you. That's why in Proverbs chapter 3 it says, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord does what? He disciplines the one he loves, just like a father, the son he delights in. So maybe a good piece of news for you this morning, friends, is God loves you way too much to let you be the way you are today. He wants you even better. He longs to see, uh, to be at the center of your life. I heard a great sermon a couple of weeks ago up in Branson, Missouri. And the guy basically talked about what is, what's the center of your life? Now he kind of made a few jokes about it, but he said there are some people, their dog or their cat is the center of their life. Particularly if you read Facebook often enough. I mean, for some people, it's their house or their car. I mean, what's at the center of your life when, when push comes to shove and it's all gone? Is Christ at the center of your life? See, God designs, he has designs in our troubles always for our good. It, it was C.S. Lewis uh, who once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to a deaf world. Here's the second thing I want to tell you, and that's that God sees more than we do. And uh, the wonderful thing is that even though we are sometimes very slow in returning to God, God is never slow in returning or responding to us. Now look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6. Um, it tells us, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Now, for Israel, he, he first sends an unnamed prophet. We really don't know who he was to call them back to total surrender, full devotion. But his plan also included one of the most unlikely people and that guy's name was Gideon. You were wondering if I was going to ever get around to Gideon. Uh, but we meet Gideon in verse 11, where he is threshing some wheat, but he's doing it inside a wine press so that he can hide from the Midianites. 
Now, some of you don't understand this because you're not farm people, but people who are farmers understand this. I learned this from my grandpa a long time ago, going out on the farm and grabbing some of those heads of wheat and rubbing them together in my hand, and then when you, you blow them, and the chaff all flies away, and then you bunch on the wheat kernels. Now, anybody would know that if you want to thresh wheat, you do it out in the open so that all of the wind can drive that chaff away. But Gideon obviously is pretty scared. He's probably been stung before by somebody stealing his crops. That he goes into hiding in, in an underground wine press, hoping nobody sees him. He's probably coughing and sneezing in there with the chaff going every which way. It's a pitiful sight when you think about it. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of discouragement, a lot of fear. <clears throat> And then, if you've ever wondered if God has a sense of humor or not, you read verse 12 where it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Gideon, and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) Now, could you imagine Gideon kind of going, "Uh, What? Uh, Who? (laughs) Where? Uh, he, He was looking around. You know, the question is, was God being sarcastic here? Or did God actually see something that Gideon could not see about himself? See, I, I believe that God saw what he was about to make out of Gideon, and it was about high time that Gideon saw what God wanted to do, too. So I'm going to ask you another hard question. Do you, uh, do you know who you really are? Do you know who you really are? You know, one of the biggest lies this world tells us, one of the biggest lies that come from the pit of hell from Satan, one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves is that God only uses special people. But let me let you in on something. If you are a born-again believer, if you are a Christ follower, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether it was two minutes ago or, I was going to say 200 years ago, 20 years ago or 70 or 80 years ago, guess what? Let me tell you about a few things about who you are. First of all, you are a child of God. You read that in John 1, 12. Uh, you are his friend. That's what it says in John 15, 15. You are his masterpiece. That's Ephesians 2, 10. You ever think about that? that you are an honest-to-goodness masterpiece. You're not just a hunk of junk. You're a masterpiece. You have been justified. That's what Romans 5, 1 says. You have been freed forever from condemnation. Romans 8, 1. You are adopted into a family. That's what Ephesians 1, 5 says. It says that your citizenship is in heaven. That's why we say, I'm but a stranger here. What? Heaven is my home. That's in Philippians 3.20. You belong to God. That's 1 Corinthians 6.20. And you will never, ever be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Romans 8.35. That's who you are. Everything... In fact, what God has done, God has given you everything you need for life and for goodness and to enjoy the life he's given you. God knows who you are, whether you know it or not. And he, he, he wants to work in you constantly to let you know your true identity. Here's the third thing. And that's that God confirms his priorities with his presence. Now, after being called a mighty warrior, uh, Gideon actually questions God in verse 13. He says, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Uh, Where are all these wonderful deeds our father told us about? Didn't the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. See, his conclusion was that God had bailed out on him, that God had abandoned him. 
But verse 14 says something that must have just blindsided or bulldozed poor Gideon. It says that the Lord turned to him, looked him full in the face, and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? But you know Gideon, he's probably not the brightest bulb in the box yet, and he didn't do the math. So he notes very quickly, kind of reminds me of Moses, that whole story. He says, I'm not, I'm the weakest link in my whole family. I'm the youngest in my family. I don't have any authority to call out the cavalry from my group of people, let alone from everybody else. But God confirms it with his presence. In verse 16 says, but I will be with you. And together we will strike the Midianites as one man. See, God or Gideon is given an undeniable commission. But the remarkable results in advance, promised, unrivaled partnership with the Lord was a bonus. And then after further confirmation, he suddenly realized he actually was dealing with God himself. Now, there's an interesting little phrase. Uh, you all read your Hebrew Testaments all the time, right? Larry, you've trained them Hebrew and Greek. I kind of thought you would. But in verse 22, it said, Then Gideon perceived that he, that he, talking about God, was the angel of the Lord, all capital letters. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now you might say, what does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew, that is the Malach Yahweh. And that word, every time you see that, the angel of the Lord with capital L-O-R-D, is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. He saw Jesus face to face in the Old Testament. And guess what? When you see Jesus, you see God. I mean, he needed a personal encounter with God. And because he did, God met him right where he was, giving him a sense of peace and purpose by his promised presence. See, there's something that changes all of us. When we listen to his voice, or when we, like that old song says, look fully into his face. See, suddenly God's priorities, when we have seen Jesus, become the most important thing on earth. So Gideon's now ready for his first test that takes us up to our fourth point here. And that's that private faithfulness is a prerequisite to public usefulness. See, before Gideon now can actually be used publicly, he has to go home and clean up a little bit. He has to clean up his own backyard because, as you read the text, his family was violating big time the first and second commandments. They had the bales on their property. They were also practicing some other pagan worship. So the very first thing the Lord God tells him to do is go home and take, go take your dad's seven-year-old prize bull and, by the way, tear down the Asherah pole. I'm not even going to get into what that is. Pastor Larry can explain that to you sometime. I don't need to do that on a Sunday morning. But that Gideon was to sacrifice that prize bull by using the wood of the Asherah pole from the destroyed idol. Now, what's the point of all of that? Well, if you want to learn how to trust God, you must first set your own house in order. Before God can use you mightily, he must be magnified in your own life and he must be magnified in your own home. See, private worship prepares us for the public power that God wants to use in our lives. There are no shortcuts. So, is there anything that you've been hanging on to in your life? Is there any sin, and let's be honest with this, we all got a sin that we probably hang on to a little bit too long. 
It could be something you say, well, it's no big deal, it's only gossip. No, that's a pretty big deal. Well, now it's, I, my sin is that every once in a while I just kind of expand the truth. <laughs> it's still is a big deal. Or somebody once told me, see, he, he didn't like to use the word sin. He called it momentary indiscretion. I, I don't care what you call it. It's, a sin is a sin is a sin. And, and, and so he said, you know, take care of your life. Uh, you need to knock down your idols. You need to confess your sins. I mean, deal with it. Return in full obedience. Now, when you do that, will that stir things up? Oh, you bet. It's, it did for Gideon. Evidently, the entire community was up in arms when he went out and took the bull and then sacrificed it on the burnt-down Asherah pole. Uh, because that, that bull, by the way, was prized breeding stock for his father. Verse 30 says that the men of the city came to his father Joash and said, Bring out your son that he may die. When was the last time you ever decided to give up a sin and the people in town says, We need to kill that guy. And it says, For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. See, Gideon's act was already changing his father. His father, Joash, stood up to the men and said, Look, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? I mean, whoever contends for him should be put to death by morning. But if he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been borne down. And if you guys don't want to believe in that old Baal guy, he's going to take care of himself. If he doesn't, too bad. Clean up your own house. Here's number five. God is patient in our faith process. He really is. You know, if this were a movie right now, we get to verse 33 of chapter 6, there would be this ominous music play. Bum, 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 bum. Uh, because it says the Midianites and their partners were ready for their annual tour of Israel. But instead of cringing this time in the cave, verses 34 and 35 said, The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. He also sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they all came up to meet him. Here he is now speaking in the power of the Lord. Now, I hope you caught that. Gideon has taken a huge leap of faith in his private faithfulness. And now God's spirit was drawing people from far and wide. In fact, 32,000 guys show up to fight. But now you have to pay attention to this. Even after his encounter, you know, with the Malach Yahweh, with the incarnate Jesus, even though he'd been obedient to clean up his shop, even though the Spirit was empowering him, he was still struggling in his doubts. He knows God has promised to save Israel, but he's looking in the mirror, and what he sees in the mirror doesn't look like a mighty man of valor. Well, I tell you, I have felt that way from time to time in my ministry. You know, you're called to lead a church, you're called to be, uh, you know, lead in a ministry, and I stand, I look in the mirror, and I just say to myself, you're just some dumb kid from Nebraska. I mean, who are you that you should do this? But notice in verses 36 and 37, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and the ground is dry, I'll know that you're right. Now, I love how tender and loving and patient God is with us. I mean, Gideon's making a deal. He's cutting a deal with God. He wants a confirming sign. And the next morning, of course, uh, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. But then even doubting Thomas, Gideon says, okay, that's a pretty good trick. Could we do it the other way around and make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And God probably smiled and says, 
Maybe I got this man of valor thing wrong, but yeah, okay. So what's happening here is that the Lord is developing him into a fully convinced, fully committed servant, matching every doubt with his kind assurance. Now, please understand this, friends. God will show you the same patience in your life as you seek his face, as you, you, to, to get rid of your fears and to grow you into the man or woman of God that he desires you to be. Now, here's the sixth and final one. Success is determined by God's power. Gideon is now ready to rumble. But God says 32,000 is way too many. In chapter 7, verse 2, he said, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest you guys brag, say, our own hand saved us. So God says, I have a few tests. The first test, he says, tell the guys who really don't want to fight to go home. Uh, 22,000 went home. <laughs> Bunch of weasels. Uh, but the, but the, so they still got 10,000 left. And God says, still too many. So in verse 4, he gives them the second test. He says, take them down to the water and let them all have a drink. And, and all the guys who bend over and just stick their face in the water and drink, send them all. Take the ones who actually take their hand and bring it up. Now, I always wondered what the purpose of that was, but you know, these people are a little bit more alert, aren't they? They can look for enemies, not burying their face down there. And lo and behold, he starts with 32,000. And after this little drinking trick, he's got 300. Now, could you possibly imagine how he felt? Chapter 8, if you go further, tells us that the Midian army had 135,000 soldiers. Uh, I'm not a great mathematician, but I think that's 450 Midianites to every one Israeli soldier. But God wanted Gideon's army to face his horde with 300 people who knew how to drink politely. So, so God here creates an impossible situation of human weakness to exalt his own strength. But friends, that's God's specialty. What did Jesus say in Luke 18, 27? What is, what is impossible for man is possible with God. So here's a good lesson for us. Accomplishing God's purpose is not determined by the bottom line on our financial sheet. God's purposes is not determined by the size of our congregations or the efficiency of our plans. We need to attend to all of those things that's just good godly stewardship. But the truth of the matter is, is that God is always looking to glorify himself on earth through people who are utterly and completely dependent upon him, who truly believe in him, and who are ready to change and do his work in the name of the Lord. See, God does not need a majority vote from us. To be quite honest, God doesn't need any of us at all. But he invites us always to join him. And when we do, we reap the benefits, and guess what? He gets the glory. And that's the cool part of it. There's a saying that's often uh, attributed to Dwight Moody. You see it on the screen. It said, give me ten men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God, and I shall change the world. Yeah, it happened in Israel that day. In one of the strangest battles ever, 300 guys went out with trumpets, torches, and jars to challenge 135,000 savage Midianites. But God sends confusion into the ranks of the enemy, so they actually began attacking each other. And when it was all over, 120,000 Midianites had killed each other, and another 15,000 fled. See, God had answered 
Israel's prayers. He used the common man, seriously flawed. He started with a zero and turned him into a hero. And I guess the question at the end of a message would be this. Why would God do that? Why would God use a man like that? I think it's because God uses flawed people because that's all he's got. (laughs) I mean, point out somebody here today who's not flawed. (laughs) Let me spend five minutes with you. I'll point out the flaws. (laughs) But he, he always deals with flawed people to demonstrate his grace because when the victory is won, he gets the glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. See, that's all we are. We're just a bunch of clay pots, easily cracked, often broken. We are not expensive, expensive china. We're just Walmart kitchenware. We're useful, but we're not very expensive. We're all cracked and chipped, but God chooses to use us anyway. As someone told me a long time ago, God does not call the qualified. He always qualifies the called. See, it comes down to this, friends. Either we believe in the redeeming grace of God or we don't. I got to tell you, I choose to believe in the redeeming grace of God. See, and if we do, if we truly believe that God can take a bunch of old crackpots, or crackpots, basically the same thing, then we shouldn't be the least bit surprised that God can do something with them. You know, God includes a fair number of flawed heroes. I mean, go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. There isn't, there isn't a non-cracked pot in that list. And we ought to be glad when we read that, that he put those names in there, that, because that means you and I can be in that list as well. Now, I've been in the ministry now for about 50 years, and what I've learned is this, is that God honors faith. And God seeks it so much that he will honor people who otherwise do some really stupid things. Anybody here want to confess that have done something stupid in their life? Okay, three of you. Okay. Can I talk to the rest of them on the way out? I, I know, you're all just sitting there like, oh my gosh, what is this, a Pentecostal service? We'll have our hands in here in a moment. Uh, no, okay, two of them, there we go. we got the Pentecostal in the back. My kids call me a Luther Baptocostal anyway, so... Uh, we've all done stupid things. We've all done, we, you know, all, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, have we not? And yet God can still take those broken vessels and restore them and do great things. So God uses tough times to get our attention. Is he getting your attention these days? I mean, God always sees more than we do. Are you beginning to see at all what God sees in you? I mean, God confirms his priorities with his presence. I mean, can you, have you been in situations lately where you could just sense his presence, you knew he was there, and you just thought, oh, man, this is really great. I mean, private faithfulness for public usefulness. I mean, are there things in your life that maybe you ought to think about moving away, cutting the cord, moving on? And then God is patient in your faith process. I mean, he meets you right where you are, and he wants to take you where you need to be. See, success is always in God's hands, not ours. Will you trust him today with your life, your children, your finances, your decisions, your husband, your wife, your church, whatever? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the wonder of the testimony of your grace in the life of Gideon. 
The reminder again that you're not looking for perfect people, because quite honestly, there are none. You're looking for those who are broken and weak, that they may be strong in you. We thank you that you're a faithful God. You protect your people. You've made a covenant in Christ to save and redeem those who believe in you. And you will continue to keep that covenant as well. We thank you that you are a faithful God. Great is your faithfulness. And may these truths be encouraging to our own hearts that you can use us even with our flaws. We thank you in the Savior's name. Amen. May God bless you.